0: of the message this morning That video is a demonstration of what we call the domino effect. You all know what it's like to play with dominoes. I don't know if you ever did that as kids, but what's interesting to me about that video, and you can even YouTube some other ones, is that the domino effect is not just saying that when you tip over one thing, it knocks over other dominoes. Is that when you tip over a domino, if you saw at the end of the video. The domino effect has the power to topple another domino that is double the size of the one before it. We use that term, the domino effect, to talk about how things that we do have bigger reactions than maybe we would anticipate. And last week, as we studied Genesis 3, we saw the original sin. And what we're going to see this morning is that it's not just Adam and Eve's sin that produce a domino effect. It's your sin and it's my sin. That the sin that we produce in our lives is going to produce a chain reaction that is far longer and far bigger than you and I would like to think. I think all of us know what it's like for someone who maybe was a parent or was a leader in our life, and when they sin, for it to have dramatic effects in your life. I know some of you came from very difficult childhoods, and you know what it's like when a father or a mother are living in sin and making bad choices that it has a huge effect on the generations to follow. You know that when leaders who have a choice to lead either a church or a company or something like that, and those type of people make mistakes or really we should call them sins, that their sins lead to a domino effect that affects more people than just them. But I would wonder if you've seen how your own sin has produced a chain reaction that maybe was a little bigger than you've ever thought. How you notice your bad habits and your sins and your bad tendencies begin to be replicated as your children grow older. And the very same sins you commit are now duplicated in these young ones. You start telling them, hey, you shouldn't do that. And then something inside of you says, wait a second, I do that too. Maybe you've watched in your own life and horror as you tried to lie to cover up something and then that one lie led to another lie and led to another lie and a bigger lie and a bigger cover up. And now you're trying to remember all of the lies that you've said because it's produced a chain reaction. Or maybe you're here this morning, like many of us, I think. And you would agree, yes, Pastor Mike, there's some sins in my life that I would agree they produce a chain reaction. But I think all of us have a category of sin that exists in our heart that we would like to think doesn't affect other people. Maybe you're here this morning and you would say, well, that's just preacher talk. You're just making a bigger deal out of sin that is really there. Sometimes sin just affects me. But what do I wanna show you from our passage this morning Is that sin's effects are always larger than we think. Our passage this morning is quite serious. We're gonna get a serious word from the God of heaven because he will speak almost all the words in this passage and he will show us that sometimes, nearly every time we could say, we underestimate the consequences of our sin. But not only that, in this passage, we're going to see, not only do we underestimate the consequences of sin, but we're going to see in this passage some early glimpses of the hope of salvation from our sin. Our passage this morning, I'm going to break it down really in two sections, and the third section we'll cover next week. I want you to see the call for confession. And then we're gonna spend a lot of our time showing God's words about the chain reaction of sin. And here's what you're gonna find. That much of what you observe in the world around you, much of the things that make life hard are a direct result of sin. And when we look at the suffering of sin this morning in great vivid detail, I hope it's going to help all of us have a cry in our hearts for the Savior who can deliver us from our suffering. Let's look in the Bibles, in, the, in your Bible with you or on your phone. In Genesis 3, we're going to start reading in verse number 8. And we'll read through verse 24. Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, Thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field and upon thy belly shalt thou go and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I'll put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. <clears throat> Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And unto Adam also, and to his wife, did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become evil as one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and also take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims, and a flaming sword, which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. I want you to see this morning that in verses 8 through 13, God calls these sinners to confession. It's interesting to me that the passage starts off with God walking in the garden and looking for Adam. I mean, come on, y'all. He knew where Adam was. He, He made the garden. He made Adam. He put him in the garden. He made the brain that Adam and Eve were using to desire the fruit that he said not to eat. But yet in this passage, it shows man hiding from God, and it shows God looking for man. And that's how it always works, isn't it? When you and I sin, our sin does not drive God away from us. It drives us away from God. Your sin has a tendency to make you run from God, to hide from him because of the shame of your sin. And for reasons I can't explain, in Genesis 3 begins the theme of all of the Bible, that God is the one who is seeking and searching after lost and sinful people. You realize this morning you could be sitting in a church pew, but you could be hiding from God? You could be sitting in the church house, and yet you want nothing to do with God because you want to build a wall with your sin? But friend, I want to assure you this morning that you may be your best doing your best hiding out from God, but God is seeking. God is searching. God is running after you. You can't run far enough to get away from God. Jonah tried, but he didn't get very far before God met him in the way. And here God is with these people who openly rebelled against him. Who said, We want to take God's place. We want to be like Him. We want to deny His authority and His wisdom by eating of this fruit. And yet, God goes looking for them. And then begins a series of questions in the passage. I like this. God, in His grace and His kindness, He doesn't just come right out and say, Hey, you did this. He knew what was wrong but maybe because God delights in us coming to an awareness of our own sin and confessing it on our own terms, God doesn't begin with an accusation. God begins with questions. And the first question we see from God towards these sinful people is in verse number nine. God says, where are you? Y'all, God didn't need to know where their location was. He was trying to get them to reveal their location. And really what is shown in this passage is that as God is walking through the garden, here's Adam and Eve, and they're hiding behind a bush. He's waiting for them to show themselves to him and confess their sin. But they don't do it. So he says, where are you? Well, because God's twisting Adam's arm a little bit, Adam comes out of hiding and begins in a dialogue with God, and he starts talking to God and says, wait, 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 why are you even ashamed of your nakedness, Adam? Who told you you were naked? And we saw last week that the shame of sin... was was what was going on here. They're they're ashamed of their nakedness because of the sin that came into their life and brought the realization that they were naked. So here God is talking to Adam and Eve. He says, wait, hold on a second. You lived in my presence in perfect innocence. Why are y'all upset about this now? God knew that they had taken of the fruit of the tree of knowledge and good and evil. And we saw last week that they took of that fruit, thinking they would have knowledge like God, but Satan told half-truth because they got knowledge, but they only got knowledge of the shame in their nakedness. And Adam's response is astounding because Adam knows where God is going. God is asking him, what's up with your sin, Adam? And notice how Adam responds to this In verse number 11, sorry, verse number 12, he says, the woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she is the one who made me do it, Adam says. So God is asking Adam, what's up with your sin? And he starts pointing his finger at his wife. Remember, it was just a chapter earlier that Adam is literally singing in response to the good gift of this wife. Remember that? The perfect match for him. And the woman he was singing about in chapter number two, and chapter number three, he's blaming for his sin. So God goes to Eve. Eve, what is it that you've done? And this is a call and echo that's gonna resound through Genesis. It's the same question he's gonna ask Cain after he murders his brother Abel. What have you done? And here Eve is, and when God confronts her about her sin, what does she do? Well, she can't blame Adam. She blames the serpent. So here's Adam. Adam, why have you sinned? The woman did it. He goes to the woman. Why have you sinned? The serpent made me do it. Well, he can't go anywhere from there, right? And here are these people whom God is calling to confess their sin, and yet when they're given the opportunity to confess, they blame someone else for their sin. Friend, this morning, I think we all have to recognize if we're gonna get anything out of this message that all of us are sinners in the presence of God. Anyone on board with that? Yeah, I mean, we're all sinners, That's news to you. We might need to spend a little more time. We're all sinners before God. Every one of us this week have sinned against him. We've directly violated his commands. And yet in this passage, we see a pattern that when we sin against God, God doesn't want us to hide from him. God doesn't want us to blame others for our sin. God wants you to own up to your sin through confession. Why does God want you to confess your sin? Because Proverbs says that those that confess and forsake their sin will find mercy. Friend, God doesn't deal mercy to people who don't accept the reality of their choices. God can't give much to somebody who wants to blame their sin on other people. And I don't know who you might be tempted to blame for your sin this morning, but I think it's worth revisiting what we talked about last week, that your choices are your own fault. Sometimes it's good to understand maybe why we sin, but we also need to recognize that we may understand that we sin because of this or because of that, but that's not the thing to blame. This morning, if you want to find mercy for your sins, you need to stop blaming your family history and start taking responsibility for your own choices You are a person with your own God-given conscience, and your sins are your choice. I've met so many people struggling in the depths of addiction who blame their addiction on their struggles. Friend, your struggles are not to blame for your addiction, your own choices are. So many of us will lash out in anger or in complaining or in gossiping or in lying. And when we get confronted about it by the Holy Spirit, we start saying, well, if life wasn't so hard, then I wouldn't burst out this way. Friend, I recognize and I sympathize that sometimes the pressures of life are like a a pressure cooker that make you want to sometimes just blow up. But at the end of the day, it's not your stresses that create your anger. It's not your stresses that create your outbursts. It's your own choice. And if you want to find mercy from God, it starts with you confessing your sins. I wonder, Christian, how long it's been since you've humbled yourself and confessed your sins to God. How long it's been that in the presence of God in prayer, you've acknowledged your wrongdoing. God, I did this and I'm sorry. That's not just a routine. That is a means that God applies mercy to your life by you coming before his presence and confessing your sins. I would hope this morning that there would be some Christians in this room who in the time to respond after the message would spend some time in prayer confessing because it's been a whole long time since they've been confessing their sins before a holy God. God calls us to confess. God walks into your life this morning and he's saying the same question. Where are you at? Where are you at? What have you done? And there needs to be some this morning who will answer, God, here I am. I'm gonna confess my sin to you. The unfortunate reality about sin, church, is that you can confess your sin and God will give you mercy and grace, but sin still has consequences. Sin still has consequences and those consequences are often far bigger than we could have ever imagined. And the rest of this passage in verses 14 through 24 shows us a chain reaction formed by this original sin from Adam and Eve. And in this passage, God is gonna show us six different consequences, not just temporary consequences, eternal consequences, that only be rolled back by the grace of Jesus Christ. He's gonna show us that our sin brings suffering into this world. And God, as this author is originally writing Moses, he's writing these things down so that you and I can look in our world and we can look at all the suffering that's here and it can remind us of the sin that we need a savior to deliver us from. The first consequence is that sin brings humiliation to God's enemies. Sin brings humiliation to God's enemies. Look at this in verse number 14. He says to the serpent, who was the enemy of God, he says, you're gonna be humiliated. You are cursed above all cattle. You're cursed above every beast of the field. And then the last part, of verse 14, it's not just speaking of the biological change that happened in the serpent as he's crawling upon his belly on the dust and he's eating dust for the rest of his life. Later prophets, the Prophet Micah in chapter number 7 verse 17 would use this phrase about eating dust to describe the humiliation of everybody who aligns themselves against God. And recognize that in this passage... God is not just talking about Satan himself. He's talking about everybody who chooses to align themselves against God. The end of that action, when you say, I'm going to align myself up against God's ways and God's plan, the end of that destination is always humiliation. But yet, in these same words, is God's grace. Because as you're reading Genesis 3, if you're reading it for the first time, you got to feel some sense of defeat. Come on. Look at the consequences that are coming from this sin. And yet God, in this same verse, verse number 14, not only is he uttering a word of judgment against his enemies, but he's uttering a word of hope for those who will line up on the side of God. Because friend, the comfort you and I have as Christians is that if somebody will line themselves up against God and maybe harm God's people, or fight against God's ways, we as Christians have a hope that if we are on the side of the Lord, we will be delivered, and if we see those who are not on our side with the Lord and they're oppressing us, we can take words of hope and say they will be defeated. They will be humiliated in the end. It brings humiliation to God's enemies. Verse number 16 shows us that sin brought suffering to childbearing. All the mamas said amen. Because verse number 16 says, as God speaks to the woman, and I want you to notice this, that God says that the serpent and Adam were cursed, but he does not curse the woman. Because the responsibility of sin rested on the shoulders of Adam as the leader of his home but there are still consequences for the woman's actions. And he says to the woman, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. God says to this woman that because of sin, suffering would enter into the world and there would be great suffering in the process of childbearing. Now, it's interesting if you read verse 15 is that this process of bringing children in the world was actually the way that God would bring salvation. We'll talk about it next week, but Eve is supposed to conceive a child that will one day deliver all of humanity from the curse of sin. So childbearing really is the means of salvation. Paul says that in 2 Timothy. But at the very same time as, as Eve would Give birth to her children and subsequent women will give birth to their children. Here's what God is saying. As you give birth, not only is it a reminder of how God will one day deliver us from, the, from sin with the promised seed, but childbirth itself is a reminder of the effects of sin. As I was researching this week, it was interesting to me that from observation, it seems like that humans are the only species that have great suffering when it comes to childbearing. And I think, church, that testifies the fact that God's words here are true. That there is a unique suffering that came into the world of humans because of their sin. If you're here this morning and you've experienced the suffering of childbearing, which it's not just the pain, but it's the difficulties of infertility, postpartum depression, premature labor, and miscarriage. Ladies, can I just help you? If you've ever experienced those things, those are not the result of your individual sins. The suffering that you've experienced in those very horrifying realities is a reminder not of your individual sin, but of the sin of all humanity that brought suffering into the world. But yet, suffering is like a reminder notification on our phone. Because ladies and and men, as you walk through these times of suffering when it comes to childbearing, here's what I think this passage is teaching us, that the suffering that comes from our sin should lead us to cry out to a savior. That those acts of suffering are reminders that we need Christ. And his deliverance. Verse 16 shows us that sin brought strife to marriages. So Eve's relationship with her children is affected and her relationship with her husband is affected. This is actually a really difficult verse to understand. There are one or two different interpretations, but I'm just going to share with you what I think it means. In verse number 16, uh, God says, Thy desire shall be to thy husband and he shall rule over thee. What God is saying there, and he uses the same phrase in chapter 4, verse 7, where he says, sin's desire is for you, Cain. He's saying this, that the woman's desire now, God had an established order for the home, and in her act, she was subverting that order. And so God was now, as a result of sin, it was going to bring strife to their marriage. We saw in chapter number 2 that the woman and the man were rib sharers. They they were sharing a rib that was a picture of the profound unity that God desires for every marriage. You remember that? And what God is saying is that because of sin, those who are meant to share a rib would now be rivals. Those who are supposed to work in tandem would now, because of their own sinfulness, be working against each other. And we all know, if you've been married, that sin brings strife to marriages. And it doesn't just bring strife when when ladies try to subvert God's order for the home. That's just one of thousands of ways sin brings strife to marriages. Can I just help you this morning? If you have marital problems, it's not the person you're with and the match you have with them, it's the sin in your heart. And often, it's the sin in both of y'all's hearts, both of our hearts. Because sin brings strife to marriages. You having marital problems this morning? Has sin brought strife to your marriage through the form of lust? How many marriages have been destroyed by lust? Lust for money. Lust for power. Lust for someone else to enjoy physically. How many marriages have been destroyed by the sin of neglect? I said this a couple of weeks ago when we preached on marriage, but marriage takes work. And it's the sin of selfishness that causes husbands and wives to sit on the bench and stop putting in the work that makes marriage work. If you want your marriage to work, it takes work. And what, what do we call the sin when somebody doesn't wanna work? Laziness, selfishness. In so many marriages, it's not an affair. It's not a big blow up that ruins a marriage. It's people who stop working. Sin brings strife. Friend, if you're here this morning and there's strife in your marriage and it's created by sin because all strife in marriage is created by sin. What that should cause you to do as a husband and as a wife is to cry out for a savior. You don't need psychology as much as you need a savior. He's somebody who will fix your sin because when you fix your sin problem, you fix your strife problems. There's another consequence for sin. Verses 17 through 19 tell us that sin brought struggle to our work. Adam was a gardener, he was a, a man who worked the ground. And God says that this process of working the ground would no longer yield the same production that it used to have. That Adam would be working by the sweat of his brow. And it's a sense of irony because Adam's sin had to do with the fruit of the tree. Adam's desire was to get something from the ground that God said he couldn't have. And God says, fine. Now I'm gonna curse all the ground. And it won't come as easy as it used to. There will be thorns and thistles In Western Kansas, there'll be crabgrass. Y'all, I love the rain, but if it wasn't for sin, the rain would just grow my grass, not my crabgrass. We got some farmers in here who recognize that if we're gonna yield production from the ground, it takes a whole lot of work. It takes work from chemicals, it takes work from sweat, it takes work from tractors, it takes work from sprinkler systems, it takes a whole lot of work. And as you stand out there on your farm ground, fellas, as you go to your job and you deal with office politics and bad bosses, As you show up to a job that you don't really like, but because you want to provide for a family you love, friend, it's that type of suffering, it's that type of hardship that should call us to cry out for a God that one day will give us a perfect life. And he himself will provide all of our resources in the new heaven and the new earth. And there will be that river of life with the tree of life, and we will eat from that. We won't need to toil the ground, because God will provide all that we need. Sin brings struggle to our work. You remember what the main consequence God said would be, right? Adam, if you eat of that fruit, I think it's chapter two, verse 17, in the day that you eat of it, what will happen? You will surely die. We're on consequence number five and we're just now getting the ones that Adam should have expected. Are you catching the drift this morning that sin brings bigger consequences than you could ever anticipate? It brings more consequences than you could have ever guessed. It brings six in this passage, and Adam should have only expected one. And the one he should have expected was number five, that sin brings death to our bodies. God says in verse number 19, that Adam's end destination would be to return to the dust from which he was made. Death would be the result of sin. I love how Paul reflects on this passage. He says, I think it's in Romans 5, that death reigned from Adam to Moses. Death was in control till God stepped in. And when you read the book of Genesis, you might wonder, what's up with these genealogies? Like, why do I care who begat who? You ever thought that? You turn to Genesis 5, and it's somebody begat somebody. But then you notice in Genesis 5, a very key phrase that you might have underestimated before. At the end of every one of the sections is three words And he died. And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. And he died. What's Genesis 5 showing us? It's showing us that sin brought death and nobody escapes it but by the grace of God. I think that one of the things that makes this world hardest to live in is for us as people to come to terms with the reality of death. And it's not death that comes at old age that makes us be reminded of the suffering of sin. It's the death that comes at the times we least expect it. You ever experienced that? A relative that died too soon? A child that died before it was born? I I could be wrong, but I feel like in the last six months, we've had far more teenagers die in, in their surrounding communities than ever before. So many die too soon. And what is our temptation in those moments, isn't it, is to look up to heaven and say, God, why would you allow them to die? Or to be worried, God, why do I, why do I have to have this impending fear that someday I might die? But scripture is very clear, and listen very closely. Death was not God's design for this world. Death is a consequence of sin. Not your individual sin always, but the sin that entered the world at the time of Adam and Eve. Verse number 22 is clear that God wanted Adam and Eve to dwell for eternity. He wanted to give them eternal life based on eating of the tree of life. That was God's design. God's design was not death. But yet what Genesis is showing us is that death is what we deserve for all of our sins. And so what we need to recognize is that every moment of life is a gift of grace from God. Really all of us, we deserve to die from the moment we came into this world. The psalmist says this, that in sin I was conceived. He's saying, I was a sinner. I inherited sin from the moment I was created. But friend, when we experience the pain of death, It should cause us not to be frustrated at the God of heaven, but to look to him for salvation from it. That like Paul, if we feel the sting of death, we might cry out, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? And he says in the very next verse, thanks be to God who had delivered us through Jesus Christ. The suffering of death friend, should cause us to look to the Savior who's promised us a resurrection. But then the last consequences in verse 22 through 24, it's far worse than death because verse 22 through 24 shows us that sin brings separation from our God. As if the story wasn't bad enough, We see in verse 22 through 24 that because God is holy, man can no longer dwell in this temple sanctuary, the Garden of Eden. Because God's paradise in chapter two, verses 15 through 17 is very clear that those who will submit to God's authority will experience God's paradise. And here are Adam and Eve, and they have no longer submitted to God's authority. He has to cast them out of his presence. Verse number 23, he sent them from the garden of Eden. Now what you have to understand is that this act of judgment was also an act of grace because if they were to remain in the garden any longer, God would have to consume them with a fire of judgment in that moment because his holiness cannot coexist with our sin. Sin doesn't just separate us from God in the present, friend. Sin separates us from God for all of eternity. There's an eternal separation that the Bible says comes from our sin. Have you committed sin? This is what the Bible says is the result of it in Revelation 20. I think it'll be on the screen. It says, and the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them and they were judged every man according to the works and death and hell were cast in the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. The Bible is clear that our sin does not just bring death upon us physically. It brings another type of death which is physical and eternal spiritual separation from God forever forever. And it's that separation, friend, that should cause all of us to cry out for a savior. If you're here this morning and you've never placed your faith in the cleansing act of sacrifice that Jesus offered for you, my friend, that is the only way you will be delivered from the consequences of your sin. We'll see that more next week. But as we feel the consequences of sin, it should always drive us back to God. Unlike Adam and Eve, we should not be hiding from him. If you're here this morning, I think God has two questions for you. He's asking us, where are you? Like he asked in verse number nine. Where are you? I wonder this morning if you're, you've been running from God. Sometimes when we run from God, it Causes us to be a little bit less excited about coming to his house. But there are people who show up at church every Sunday who are running from God. Where are you? Stop hiding. And come before God. And he asked this question as well. What have you done? I think what would be good for us this morning and I would imagine everybody could do this because everybody's a sinner, is for us to confess what we've done against God this week. Because the reality is, is that though Jesus has atoned for your sins, and you don't need to come to God for confession to get re-saved or anything like that, the truth of the matter is, that even as a Christian, sin puts distance between you and God. And I've said this before, but it's, it's astounded me how many Christians I've talked to about sin, and I'll ask them the question, so have you talked to God about that? In all the counseling I've ever done, not once has a Christian said, yeah, I've already confessed this to God. Which tells me, Christians... are not confessing their sin like God intends for us to do. So Shelby's gonna come and play. And I think what we need to do is humble our hearts before a holy God. He is holy, holy, holy. And my friend, he's not trying to drive you away. He's trying to call you back to him the grace that is in his son Jesus Christ. But you, my friend, if you want God to extend his mercy to you, you must come out of hiding and confess your sins. Because Proverbs says, Whoever confesseth and forsaketh their sins shall find mercy. I think we're all in need of some mercy this morning. Let's confess our sins to God. I want to give you some time to do that. Every head bowed and every eye closed. We all need to come into God's presence today and confess our sins to Him. On the screen, Rick.